From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. And in this episode of Land Stories, we're going to continue where we left off in the previous episode, looking at the history of the uh, Interstate 496 Freeway in Lansing, Michigan, with a particular focus on not necessarily the lanes and traffic volume and freeway engineering, but on what happened to the community that the freeway was put through. And specifically, we're referring to the neighborhood that, uh, well, mostly was demolished when that freeway was put through. And last week, we had a guest who joins us again today, Patrick Sambier. Hello. Hello, Patrick. So glad you could come back today. Of course. And we also have Bill Castanier. Nice to see you again, David. Very good to see you. Also to see Patrick for the first time. And we'll talk about that actually here in a little bit. So we are um, going to continue our exploration of the Interstate 496 Freeway History Project, which was called Paving the Way. And Bill, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about, well, first, how did you get involved in this idea that you would study the history of this freeway and then focusing specifically on the people that were displaced by it? And then, I'm good at asking long questions, so uh, sort of part two of that question would be, how did that idea germinate into something larger? Well, one of the things I, I think that helped spur this idea on was my own personal history. Some time ago, I was showing my grandson the places, many of the places I li- lived, and my wife and I lived in Lansing, and we went and drove by them and took photographs, and Coming across that expressway, which 50,000, 60,000 people do every day, there's no concept of what was there. That at one time, that was a teeming neighborhood with 600 homes and businesses. And I thought, well, I could show my family where I lived. The people that lived in this neighborhood could only only show them, oh, I lived next to the, like the yield sign. That was my house was right there. And come to find out, I was totally accurate. Uh, like I said, 50,000 people traverse that road every day and don't give it one thought to what was once there. And we've lost totally, totally lost that history. And what we wanted to do is recreate that history to the best we could possibly do 50 years later. Many of the people, obviously, that were primary sources are dead now. Uh, mm-hmm. They would have been in their 90s. And so that was basically the inspiration for it. And we started thinking about, okay, how could we do this project there was a federal grant available that specifically spoke to the history of African-Americans and their neighborhoods. So we applied for that grant. We got a $50,000 grant in combination with the city of Lansing. And we started to try. We knew we had to make this a grassroots effort. The historical society historically was not very diverse, frankly. It's mostly old white men. And we wanted to change that atmosphere as best we could. And the one way of doing that was work with grassroots people. And very quickly, we discovered two people, um, Adolph Burton and Ken Turner, who had started to shoot videos of people they knew in the community. And we took it from there, and that became one of the many pieces in the project to recreate this neighborhood. Probably one of the most important pieces, though, because they were first person. Sure. And that's a 
something we're going to come back in a little bit, and I'll bring Patrick into the conversation for that. Um, you bring up an interesting point, though, certainly, and that is this idea that people that don't have a place that they can go to and point to a house and say, that was the one I grew up in. It sounds like that created this, uh, you know, it's really a change in identity that stuck with folks for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. It's a year in the second and third generation before, and people have told me the story of not being able to show their kid where they lived. Sure. And so it was a common, it's a common experience. You could, you can go home again. Maybe not literally. You can't go into the house because you don't own it. But to be able to drive by where you grew up and played and had all your friends and it's totally gone. I, it is one of those things that's hard to imagine unless you've lived through a bombing or you know something like that uh, during a war. The decimation is more than a physical structure. It's a loss of a cultural identity. Sure, and it's going to sound strange because I've lived in Lansing for many years and I've driven down uh, Interstate 496 more times than I could count, but only recently, so since April, when the latest part of the reconstruction project has been going on, when I drive by that project, and, and especially when, say, about a month and a half ago, when all the dirt movers were out there and before any of the new pavement had been laid down, it really absolutely cemented in my mind this idea that when a freeway was put through, they destroy every single thing in its path, sort of no blade of grass left uncovered. And in Lansing, 496 is put below grade. So it's this incredible chasm of, of, of nothing and concrete. It's exactly. And I think the combination of rebuilding the expressway was an eye-opener for a lot of people because they'd forgotten what it was like. You could have probably shot identical photographs 50 years apart, and it would have looked, except for the equipment because it's much more modern, it would have looked exactly like it did. Sure. Which you could see the total decimation, huge dirt piles. Just It was an amazing thing to see. And people lived through that because 496, both fortunately and unfortunately, did not tear down the entire streets. They left the west and the east side sure. of those neighborhoods. So the people actually not only lived through the deconstruction, they had to live through the reconstruction. And uh, having a, an interstate highway now, essentially in your back or your front yard, as it were. And, you know, the interesting thing is there's lots of discussions about doing sound barriers on 127, continuing mm -hmm. them. There are no sound barriers on 496. And mm -hmm. they thought the idea was of if it was 20 feet under grade, that would take care of the sound in downtown. That did not happen. That amplified the sound. It was almost like a speaker. Yeah. And it's, you cannot stand on a front porch of one of those houses that's left on Main or St. Joe and carry on a conversation. Oh, sure. You can't it's, do it. It's so loud. And, and it's one of these things where I think now nowadays, probably even more than maybe, even as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, people who drive down that road don't think about that. And here's why. Because most cars have air conditioning in them now. And even as recently as 20 years ago, many didn't that were sold here in Michigan. So when you drove down a freeway and it was a warm summer day and you had the windows rolled down, the noise is it's louder than being in a commercial uh, jet aircraft flying. Oh, it's, it's loud. I'd uh, like to see some uh, decibel sure. experience over there because I think they need, you know, I was really surprised in the reconstruction they didn't put in sound barriers. Yeah, and I honestly, I, I really was too. And, and looking at that reconstruction, it's really quite fascinating. Even though I said I wasn't going to talk about highway engineering, we'll <laughs> talk about it for a second because it has a social element to it, as we are identifying here. 
I was actually surprised as well that they are keeping those old, very short uh, entrance and exit ramps, and including some of these that have this sharp turn and you're right down in the freeway. And I, I suppose it's because, actually, of the uh, real one of the reasons why that freeway was put where it was, and it's all about acquisition of property. And the highway right away has been established now for a long time, and to change those entrance and exit ramps would involve acquiring more property. And that gets me on to the next thing I want to ask you about. We'll bring Patrick into the, the conversation here momentarily, too. So you have the National Endowment for the Humanities Grant, and you have a couple people that have already started to record the stories of people who had their houses demolished, the neighborhood upset when the freeway was put through. Where did the project go from there? Was there a starting point where the money was there? We've got an idea how we're going to spend it, and now this is the project charter, if you will. Did, okay. it, did it start off like that, or was it a slightly different uh, operation? Uh, a little bit different. One, we applied for a grant, and to do that, you have to write out a grant project and say what you're going to do. Now, anyone that's done a grant knows that's the beginning, not the end, because as you start grants, you evolve, you change. For example, we thought we'd be using um, African-American churches as the total outreach for this. We thought that was a good idea. Everyone did. That turned out not to be the case. We basically had to create our own network of people and doing grassroots. We talked about doing 20 oral histories. That's all. That's all we were going to do. Well, that very quickly escalated to nearly 100 oral histories. Things evolved, but we had several things we wanted to accomplish. One was the oral history. We hadn't really talked extensively about taking those and making them into a documentary, which is being done right now. We're going to publish an annual report that'll be in, on paper because we committed to doing that. But what, what happened was the um, city of Lansing, the mayor appointed about 30-person advisory board with working with the historic preservation people and a variety of neighborhood groups. So we had a board to work with. We had a full-time person or nearly full-time person that was part of the grant. That's where the majority of the grant money went. And that person was totally involved in outreach. So we had a, we had to basically delve into a history of African-American families who knew the story but had not told it outside their own group of people. I mean, it wasn't like we discovered new stories. They were mm -hmm. always there. Sure. But this this group of people were not sharing with, with the entire world. And I've, through the years uh, of being involved in various historical projects, have oftentimes learned that people, and Bill, you and I talked about this actually, I think when we um, appeared on Galaxy Forum with Melissa mm -hmm. Kaplan here a, a few months ago, when people have a story to tell, but they don't think either A, it's important, or B, that anybody wants to hear it, then those stories, they disappear. If, that, if it's never told, if it's never recorded, and 496 is put through decades ago. So nobody lives forever, as the old saying goes, because it's very true. And thus, if these stories were not recorded in some way, they might have been lost forever. Oh, they would have been. We're, in fact, we lost a lot of incredible stories because the people had already died. Mm -hmm. And during the project, between the time the oral histories were done and because of COVID, where there's about another dozen people that died that we recorded. Sure. That's so really their, their stories would have not been 
at all told, and we had a loss of really important history that we discovered. Which is really incredible. So, Patrick, I'll, I'll bring you into our conversation here. You, just remind folks, and, and not everybody that's uh, listening right now has had a chance to listen to the first episode, so uh, how did you become involved in this, and what was the role that you played? Uh, sure, yeah. I came on the very end of the project, and I was in my last year of college at U of and Flint, that was the beginning of this year. And I was looking for some internship work or some experience in the field of history. And I actually reached out to you and I sent you an email asking if there was anything that you knew of and you put me in touch with Bill. Sure. And was very glad to be able to do that. And the, the primarily the work that you did was... Oh yeah, I'm sorry. That's no, right. That's I okay. was, I was uh, subtitling videos. Okay. So that meant you had to uh, listen very carefully, obviously, and uh, to the best of your ability, record every word of it. Yes. Yeah. I've been involved in this work type of work before too. And if you've if uh, you've never transcribed a uh, conversation or an interview, it takes way longer than you think. It does. Absolutely. Uh, it, you think, oh wow, you know what? I'll just sit there and write down every word they say. That is easier said than done, isn't it? Yes, especially when you are trying to do it through. Well, it makes it easier in some ways that you have a digital form mm -hmm. go back and forth, but the interface of that sometimes just makes it a little tedious. But. Sure, sure. But I, uh, we gleaned this out of the conversation you and I had last week, Patrick, but it, it, uh, it sounds to me like you were able to gain a valuable insight into what the people who, who lived through this experience thought about it. Yes. And Bill, were you able to determine in some way or another that people looking back on this many, many decades later, might have had a different opinion of it now or have a different opinion of it now uh, in terms of the experience of going through having their houses bulldozed and the neighborhood being demolished than they would have had when this happened. I was wondering the exact same thing. And I'll tell you the impression that I got before Bill gives his you know, sure. far more knowledgeable answer. And uh, based on the couple interviews that I did, it kind of seemed that people had a more st pretty stoic outlook in, in terms of it is what it is, you know, that's that's how it goes, mm -hmm. you know, the passage of time, et cetera, et cetera. And I was wondering if Bill thought that might have been partially due to the passage of time. That was a real interesting, I'm, I'm glad you recognize that because that is one of the things we discovered. There wasn't the tremendous outrage. Now, again, a lot of the people we interviewed were second generation. One of the things we learned is the parents did not tell their children what was going on. There was no discussion about it. Just one day, we are going to move. So there wasn't a lot of that brought into And I was surprised about that, but... They were protecting their children from a very terrible thing, and they did a very good job of that, I thought. And there was some outrage, though. There's clear, there was clearly outrage. There was also a sense of PTSD that we think we discovered. People literally do not remember their houses being torn down. Wow. Which shocked us because they lived through it. Yeah. Because the way the houses were purchased, as soon as they purchased a house, the state, they tore it down. So... There could have been three houses in between two houses still standing. So people actually lived through that experience, but not many of them remember it. The physical tearing down of the home, well, that was a real surprise to us because it seems to me it had to be incredibly traumatic to watch your home torn down. Oh, yeah. And I, I would think maybe that 
the people that you were interviewing now, of course, would have been quite young when that happened. And I suspect maybe that's part of the reason why that was such a traumatic experience. Is yeah. And, you know, we uh, one of the things that we learned is parents specifically, for example, one family took their kids on vacation because they knew the house was being torn down within a two-week period or something. They didn't want their kids to see that. Sure. They, so parents were very protective, which I think is a, is a natural occurrence. But we, we certainly learned that from listening to their stories. Yeah, really powerful. Was there one area in Lansing, uh, one neighborhood in particular, that you could say the majority of the people Absolutely. were relocated to? And where yes, was that? It would have been South Lansing. What happened is there was a large development in South Lansing that was readily available. It had gone bankrupt. It was had been built in the fi- about 59. Okay. So it would have been a, about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Relatively new homes, not bad. Most people who could afford to relocate, relocated there. Uh, one of the things there was is we were still in the post-war housing boom sure. or, or demand for housing. There was a huge housing shortage overlaid on the construction of the expressway. So when you put 600 families into a market looking for housing with the concept that they could only live in certain neighborhoods, it created a huge problem a problem for the city of Lansing. Sure. And we touched on this a little bit actually last episode. Patrick and I did the role that redlining and, and other racial discrimination practices that were put into housing played in this. And it sounds to me like that was a major factor in determining where people moved. I think two things were going on, too. Not only was it a major factor in where people were moving to, redlining and the results of redlining and restrictive covenants, you could overlay the 1930s federal government housing maps over that, and they were almost always where expressways went. Oh, sure. Sure. It was it was simple. It was the least resistance because the cost, cost was less to buy the property. And in most communities, uh, people of color were not, as, were not as antagonistic toward the construction. Sure. And at that time, it, and this will be a comment that one could apply more generally speaking to the country as a whole, but at that time, certainly less politically powerful than now. Absolutely. And one of the things that a lot of people kind of lamented was it broke up a voting pack, too. Oh, sure. It broke up an entire neighborhood that could have had an impact with electing, you know, people of color to elected office and and having a difference. It was broken up. Yeah, it's really remarkable to think about. As you mentioned towards the beginning of the episode here today, you drive down a highway every day. Okay, it's a highway. It's concrete, it's entrance ramps, it's exit ramps. I get from point A to point B. But <laughs> it's so much more than that. It has this incredible social dynamic to it that uh, really touches, I, we've, we've talked about, I think, pretty much every aspect of uh, life that, that a community has. And one freeway being put through can have that much of a transformative effect, both positive and negative, is really remarkable. Well, you know, one of the things it did, an expressway, it dead-ended 35 streets in Lansing. So that means 35 separate neighborhoods, whether they're black or white, didn't matter. They were separated. There wasn't, you could no longer walk to a next-door neighbor. You had to go up to a ramp, come across, and come back. That Mm -hmm. happened. I don't think there was any feel for that, really, when they were building these. No. Uh, when you said earlier about the uh, minority communities being less antagonistic towards construction, it seems like that would have been for good reason because um, they could be 
they could be challenged. They could be uh, one man. It was not during the construction of this project, but just various other community work received threatening phone calls and kind of got told like by his employer, hey, do you know where your paycheck's coming from? Do you know who writes the name on your checks? And uh, other other parts of the job, if they weren't fired, they could be moved, downsized, moved to a different department and doing less important work. Yeah, one of the things, I think, Patrick, that's a really good point because many of the people that worked lived in that neighborhood, St. Joe Main Street, worked for Osmobile yep. or one of their suppliers. They had great jobs. They had the best jobs in America. So this was not a ghetto, which was one of the ways that was promoted to destroy neighborhoods. But it, there was a clear understanding that this was Oldsmobile's expressway. Sure. They were the number one power and force behind where it was located. Yep. So you did not do things that irritated your employer, especially if you were a person of color. Uh, I want to ask you one thing. We're talking about the early to mid-60s here. So how many people in this neighborhood might have owned a car? Almost everyone. Oh, okay. And they almost all owned, guess what? Oldsmobiles. Oldsmobiles. And, you know, and if you went sure. to work for Oldsmobile, one of the most, we heard some really interesting stories, and you probably did too, maybe not, but it was, um, people talked about how they'd buy an Oldsmobile. The first thing that African-American families did is they drove south in those cars because they, they couldn't take really public transportation easily. So they packed a car up with their kids, went south. It was a big deal to see a brand new car in an African-American neighborhood in Al Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Oh, sure. Tell you. People would see the the um, Oldsmobile cruisers that had the windows along, and they would just sit in them and look. The other thing that was important is this was during a period of time when African-Americans had difficulty buying houses. They did not have difficulty buying cars. It was easy to buy a car. Sure. So they, they one of the first things they did was buy cars. And the second thing they did is figure out, where can we go now? Because we were still, they couldn't go everywhere. Yeah. There was cars no place cool to back then, too. Oh, yeah. They had some yeah. great cars. All those, did. all those safety standards that make you have to change the shape of the vehicle. Yeah. 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 And some of the interior components. Less of a death trap. Sure. And, and actually, this is, Patrick and I almost ended with this uh, last uh, episode. We talked about. Uh, whether or not the fact that Lansing was and still is in many ways a uh, community that has a major part of its economy being automobile production, mm -hmm. if that changed the attitude that people had about a freeway going through, in contrast to maybe a community elsewhere in the United States that would have been the size of Lansing at the time that did not have the auto industry as a major part of its economy. And, and Bill, I ask you the same question. It, you're not in your head, so... We, we also both thought that it did. Sure. I, I absolutely believe we are a car, we are a car city. Uh, there's no question about it. So yeah. to make it easy for cars to get around, we had all the one-ways, we had sure. all kinds of things that weren't pedestrian-friendly or yeah. neighborhood-friendly. Absolutely. We were a car community. We and had 30,000 some people working in the car industry at that time. Sure. And I still a car community. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. But 496 is being rebuilt. That means it's going to be here for a long time. Mm -hmm. Last episode, I mentioned by comparison that I-375 in Detroit is being taken out. That little, I think it was the shortest stretch of interstate highway in the entire United States connects Jefferson Avenue to the Chrysler Freeway, which is I-75 as it runs through the eastern part of Detroit. And that freeway on a, on a very large scale 
I-75 had a total disruptive effect, demolished the heart of the black business community in Detroit, was overtly political in its root. The leadership of Detroit at the time bragged about the fact that they were going to take this federal highway dollars and they were going to finally put that neighborhood the way they wanted it. Exactly. It was a bunch of people at the top kind of determining how people would live, you know, in neighborhoods. And uh, you're absolutely right about 375 uh, destroying a very important, not only cultural, but business neighborhood. And that's the other thing we discovered is we didn't really think about this before we did the project was all those businesses that were black owned or served blacks, 99% of them didn't relocate. Okay, why was that? There was a couple different reasons going on. First, the Open Housing Law, Civil Rights Act, that you didn't need as many black-only businesses because you could take your laundry to a white business, for example. But most of those businesses did not reopen. So there was a whole generation, maybe two generations, of lack of entrepreneurship. It it was destroyed. It had been crushed. Sure. Uh, And businesses like that, black, white, it, yeah, it wouldn't matter. I mean, that that is how those businesses typically survive is through generational small family businesses. Dave, let me bring up one other issue that I just thought of as sure. we were talking. We chose and selected the black neighborhood, even though thousands and thousands of white families were affected too. And the reason was we had a grant for the looking at the black neighborhood. But the one distinction that African Americans understood was they couldn't live anywhere after this expressway tore their house down. Whites could move anywhere they wanted to. Yep. Blacks were shunted off into certain neighborhoods or public housing, which started to get built to a great extent because of expressways. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's a very, very important point because, uh, you know, I think that people who haven't lived through that experience and don't have the historical knowledge to know what was going on back then are oftentimes surprised to hear that, that there would be that kind of restriction that people would have coming at them from many directions. So we've got just a couple minutes left. I wanted to real quickly ask about the display of the information that uh, has been obtained through this. And I know that there was an exhibit that was planned for uh, the Michigan Library, and then when the pandemic struck, that uh, altered that plans. What ultimately came out of the the public presentation of this? Okay, what we decided to do because of COVID, we couldn't do things that it, you know, for two years almost, uh, working with Naps and the Eid family, we decided we are going to do an exhibit on the street, basically, in their former department store windows. It's kind of like, uh, you know, making wine out of grapes, mm-hmm. because one of the things that happened is more people probably saw that than they would have ever seen it in the Library of Michigan. And, sure. I mean, we just lived it because it took like six weeks to build and there were people constantly coming up to us saying thank you and we didn't know that and we could hear the conversations through the windows as we're setting it up and it was pretty remarkable to people to see the redlining stuff for example and say I had no idea none yeah so there's there's a lot more to do I think our next big focus is going to be to get the documentary done to make the oral histories accessible we're getting very close to that they'll be accessible in through Michigan State University and the Library of Michigan, so you'll be able to listen to individual stories. But the other thing I think we recognize is these oral histories need to continue, and they also need to be mined because there's amazing stories within them that we're going to tell some of the stories in an hour, but a very good filmmaker could go back and make their own documentary. 
That's great. Well, we'll have to leave it off for there because we are out of time. But I will definitely be following up in a future okay. episode with this as uh, this project is ongoing. So, Bill, Patrick, I want to thank you both for stopping by. We will leave it at that for now. Thank you very much. You betcha. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories.